Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curve, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curve. Hello there, it's six o'clock, I'm Michelle Jubery and this is Jubes and Co, the show where we'll get into some of the things that have got you talking today. I'll tell you what's got me talking today and I know it's got a lot of you guys going too because you've been messaging me about it already. The book that's aimed at four-year-old with what I would certainly call lots of inappropriate content. Why on earth do so many adults seem so desperate to expose children to overly sexual content? Goodness me. Uh, I spoke to the author, by the way, of said books. I'll have that coming up. And also, there's a new reception centre in Yorkshire opening for migrants. Residents there are not happy. A protest is taking place as we speak. But would anyone be happy with this in their back garden? Would you? And if not your back garden, then where? And employers, vaccines. Why are so many companies still insisting that their employees need to be vaccinated for COVID? Mind-blowing. And when it comes to crime, by the way, do you think there should be any special circumstances that allow people to get softer treatment? Apparently, now, if you're poor and you can't afford your food because of this whole cost of living crisis, then there's calls that if you go shoplifting, the stuff that you need, that you're treated with a lot more leniency. Hmm, I don't think I'm buying into that. Are you? Right, I want to get something off my chest, ladies and gentlemen, but not before I've given you a warning. What I'm about to read out to you contains uh, content of a sexual nature. So, are you sitting comfortably? And if so, and if you're ready, I'll begin. They kiss each other all over their bodies, behind the ears, on the neck, on the chest and stomach, even on the bum and between the legs. Sabrina's vagina becomes moist and warm and Marco's penis gets very stiff. Marco then pushes his penis into Sabrina's vagina, always in and out. That feels great for both of them. When the feeling is nicest, Marcus, Marcus's penis sprays semen into Sabrina's vagina. That's how you get babies, Toby said. The fact that I've even managed to read that out without going bright red, and I can tell you that was quite difficult because I was really battling not to go bright red then, not least because my mum's probably watching. But what I've just read out to you there is a book, it's a section of a book there anyway, called My Body is Growing. That is a children's book aimed, as it clearly states on the front page there, at four to eight-year-olds. Understandably, that has caused outrage, including with me. So I spoke today to the author about why she thinks that this kind of content is appropriate for children of that age. I think it's highly inappropriate that a four-year-old or a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old, for that matter, would be confronted with those scenes. And what you're saying to me, your explanation for writing this content is because the children are being confronted with it anyway. But I would put it to you that it's you that's doing the confronting with content such as what I've just described. What would you say to that? I want to protect children 
and I hope they are protected when uh, they feel that there are pa parents or adults um, who can talk to them about this thema. If they uh, recognize that um, their parents are frightened about this thema, they, they will never... They will never talk to him um, if they found something that, that frightens them. I hope my books will be helpful in this. Helpful? I mean, you know, please do get in touch and tell me what you think. Am I going mad here? Because I cannot understand why so many adults seem so desperate to overly sexualize children. I mean, it was only the other day, of course, that we saw a family sex show that had to get removed from the stage before it even started there. They wanted to talk to children as young as five about things like masturbation. And at one point in the play, adults would be on the stage taking their clothes off to the point where they felt comfortable. Now, forgive me, but I think this is all just weird. It's all gone too far. I think we've got to be very careful because we're almost about to kind of normalise grooming. If children are being read books that talk about the kind of things that I've just described to you, then how on earth are they going to know that it's wrong if somebody, an adult somewhere, is doing those things to them? I don't know how we kind of reverse this trend, but I hope and I pray that we very quickly start to allow children simply to be children, innocent, naive children, for as long as we possibly can keep it that way. I feel a little bit better for getting that off my chest, so I do. Right, keeping me company until 7 o'clock, my panel, Mark Wallace, the Chief Executive of Conservative Home, Filmmaker Kerry Dingle and the chief exec of PLMR, Kevin Craig. And you know the drill on Jubes and Co, don't you? It's not just about us here. It's about you at home as well. What is on your mind tonight? What do you think to some of the stories that we'll be discussing? You can get in touch with me, gbviews at gbnews.uk is the email. Or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. Don't forget, of course, that you can subscribe to us on YouTube. We've got an app. Um, we're also on the radio, ladies and gentlemen, and we are the UK's fastest growing radio station. Get that? That's quite swanky, isn't it, everybody? I was expecting it. Uh, did you notice I paused then for a brief round of applause Hooray! from my well panel? Done. Well yes. done, Michelle, and News. Yeah, well I didn't done. get a round of applause, but I think that's a great achievement. And I'll tell you for why very briefly, because I know we need to move on. Lots of people, before it was even, you know, the second it was announced that we were coming... Lots of people who seem to think that theirs is the only opinion that you're allowed to hear, they were desperate to try and shut us down and censor mm. us, and they still continue. But day by day by day, we're growing and we're building, and it's thanks to you, the audience. So wherever you are watching, listening, uh, thank you for your support and for your company. It's very much appreciated. Um, before I get into my top story, by the way, about the Migrant Centre, has anyone got any thoughts on that children's book I was just referencing? Kerry? Yeah, I, well, actually, I agree with you. I think it's really prurient and pornographic even. And I just, I do think kids should be kids. And, you know, what's wrong with leaving matters of sex and all the rest of it to parents' decision in any case and trusting parents, not feeling that, you know, as an author or as an actor or a theatre production company or as a school, it's your job 
to, you know, sexualise four-year-olds. I think it's completely insane. And I've had this argument with people before as well. You know, when kids do get to secondary school, I also disagree with the kind of sex education, PHSE, Mm. that is now on the curriculum, because I think it should be a simple matter of biology and teaching kids the biological truth and everything else is a matter for society and parents and their lives. Mark, would you read that book to your four, five, six, seven, eight-year-old child? No. I've got, to, I've got to say, I can only imagine what impact it's going to have on GB News Radio's listenership. Now you've got Sex Jackanory as part of the show. It's appalling. Um, Hence exactly. my warning to you, by the way, because I even kind of was borderline whether or not it was appropriate pre-Watershed, but I did Christ. check, and yes, mm. it was, as long as I gave you that warning, which I did. And I think, yeah, I think had it been a breakfast show, that's what they call a marmalade dropper, isn't it? Mm. I think people drop their, drop their toast in shock. But... Part of this really is about the fact that I suspect a lot of these stories are not really about children. Children are convenient props to people who are producing books like this or, or shows like the one you talked about. A lot of it, I, uh, I suspect, is actually much more about the adults who are choosing to produce this material, people who for some reason feel a need to cast themselves as a solution or a saviour to a problem that I'm not sure exists... Um, and who feel the need also, as you, as you say, Kerry, frankly, to push their own opinion into mm. a conversation that ought to happen between parents and children. The fact is that, of course, children ask their parents about all sorts of things they're wondering about. They ask about their parents' bodies. They ask about where babies come from. They ask about their own bodies. But I don't know any parent who would answer a four-year-old asking the question, where do babies come from? With that kind with, of... With, with that answer, certainly not put across exactly in, in, in that kind of way. And... Ultimately, I think one of the reasons why a lot of parents are concerned about this is that they, or a lot lot of us, lack confidence that institutions that are entrusted with educating our children are definitely going to be resistant to stuff like this. They're definitely going to apply common sense and think about what parents might want first. Yeah, and Mm. Kevin, I have to say, right, I thought long and hard about shall I read that Uh segment in full, shall I gloss over it? And I actually took the decision once I'd uh, checked that I was okay to read it I took the decision that actually it's very important actually to read that out to show people that this is the kind of content because I asked over and over and over to that author, I had quite a long interview with her, over and over and over, are you sure that you still stand by the fact that for this young age group this is appropriate? She was absolutely adamant that it was and she seemed quite perplexed that I felt it wasn't. Well, she, the author in question is a in Germany, a well-known author, and and, uh, listeners and viewers would call her a a classic uh, liberal, right? Now, I've got some reassuring news for both you, the panel, and listeners, Michelle, which is that I I happen to agree that this this book is inappropriate for the age group. But um, the good news is, um, and if I just speak for England for a minute, I'm actually very happy at the guidance that currently exists for... Um, uh, sex education in primary schools because the guidance, it puts a lot of emphasis on schools doing things in consultation with parents, communicating to them, talking to them. And I'm really happy that you're right to highlight what I think is a ridiculous book today, right, and the idea that someone thinks that content is suitable. But you see, it's not the British government's policy to stick that book in schools, fortunately. And parents, the active listeners and viewers of this programme need to know that under guidance, schools have to consult them. And I don't think... I think the British people are quite sensible. I cannot see that book going anywhere near classrooms. Well, I hope not. 
Um, and, you know, I, I explained to the author as well that I think it's inappropriate that a, a parent, what kind of parent would read that to their thing? And it's not just about this book, by the way. Please don't sit there and think, oh, why is Michelle making a big mountain, mountain out of this one book? It's not just about this one book. The reason that I'm flagging this and feel so passionately about it is because I think it's part of a trend. You know, we see, don't we, things like padded bras for primary school girls. You know, I told you about the family sex show where you've got adults deciding how comfortable, uh, how, how much nakedness they are comfortable displaying in front of children. I, I'm going to be quite bold. It sickens me because I think that we're tiptoeing into this world where if we're not careful, we're going to be almost borderline normalising some form of paedophilia. Um, anyway... I've got that. Can I just say one thing? As long as it's brief, because you've got, I've got other things to move on to, and uh, I know. left to my own devices, I'd be here all day talking about this. But no, I, ju- I just want to know why, why sex education in primary school at all? I don't, I don't see why under the age of eleven you have to have sex education. Oh. We didn't get it, and we didn't grow up weird. Well, there's a lot of things that you know happened to us, you know, around the world in the 70s that we don't want repeated. There was a lack of openness. Adults were allowed to abuse kids a lot more often. But the specific answer to your very fair question, Kerry, is I think uh, that sex education with parental consent helps ensure that, that girls and boys are prepared for the changes that come with adolescence. And that is tailored in, 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 in specific circumstances. 9, 10, 11 feels about right to me. Well, uh, I've been told I've got to move on. I wasn't actually supposed to be getting into that topic tonight, but I couldn't help it. Um, Chrissy on Twitter said, Michelle, I'm incandescent with rage. How on earth was that book even published? My inbox is on fire. I can tell you, lots of you are sharing. That sounds a bit rude, actually. But you're, <laughs> uh, you are sharing my sentiments. Uh, right, let's move on then, shall we, uh, to the top story I was supposed to be covering first. Uh, this is, of course, surrounding the government's controversial reception centres for migrants. Uh, the first one is set to open for business, essentially, in a fortnight. At least 50 migrants will move into a disused RAF base in North Yorkshire. The reception centres are to help save the £5 million per day that we are currently spending on putting these people up in uh, hotels. Well, let's cross live now, shall we, to our GB News Yorkshire and Humber reporter, Anna Riley. She is outside Linton on News Village Hall, where there's a protest happening as we speak. Good evening to you, Anna. What's going on? Hi, Michelle. Yes, a hundred villagers or more have gathered here. And the message that they've got is wrong plan, wrong place for the Linton on Ooze Asylum Centre. Now, there's a meeting currently going on in the village hall with the parish council about the next steps for these first migrants to be coming in in two weeks' time. But the concerns that the residents have got and the concerns that the local MP, Kevin Hollinrake, has said in Parliament yesterday are around the amenities in this village. There's 700 people that live live here and up to 1,500 male asylum seekers that will be coming to the disused RAF base. There's just one small village shop, one school, and villagers are just saying the place isn't big enough. And they also have safety concerns as well. They're worried that there's children and women and that these men aged between 18 to 40 can have access around the village and to the wider area and the concerns about that whether these people have been vetted whether they'll be in groups and whether people will feel safe walking the streets 
Anna, thanks for that update. Kerry, uh, let's come to you for, uh, first, shall we, on this. Where do you stand on this? Because at the moment, you know, we're spending, as I just said, nearly £5 million a day on hotels. That is not sustainable. These people are still coming over, hundreds, uh, often a day. What's the answer then? If not this, then what? Well, obviously, you know, asylum seekers have got to go somewhere. That's the case. And I, 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 and I get the point about the huge spending. But the point is, whether it's a disused RAF base, as in this case, or, you know, an airport hangar or whatever that's being converted, you wouldn't build a housing estate, new housing estate without consultation and discussion and making your case in an area. And people in this Yorkshire village have been dumped on from a very great height. I think that's the real problem. And you get the impression that it hasn't been discussed with them. The case hasn't been made to them. The facilities and resources haven't been put forward. And precisely because the assumption is they're xenophobic Yorkshire people. So we'll just, out of sight, out of mind... Shove, it, shove them in a disused RAF base. And I think that's disgraceful. There has to be the case made. People have to be won over. And asylum seekers need to be put where there are resources. They are going to outnumber the villagers three to one. And if the Yorkshire people, who certainly are not xenophobic or racist, and I've lived, I lived in Yorkshire for many, many years, and that's absolutely the case, you can imagine this will stoke those kind of fears because people are rightly really concerned and asylum seekers need to go where there are resources. The case should be made. People can be won over and uh, uh, better still, put them where there's all these jobs that can't be filled. Mark? I thought they weren't allowed to work initially anyway, so they couldn't go out and work. Well, they, they could quite quickly if a more sensible decision was made. Uh, unfortunately, during the current asylum system, people can't work during the time when they're being processed. And the two problems with that are, firstly, processing takes far too long. And secondly, it means that during that time, we, we often squander people's skills and abilities. Mm. And we, you know, we, we could, you know, frankly, over the years, we've had doctors and engineers from Syria sat in camps forbidden from working while people get frustrated that the asylum system costs money. And we should, you know, we, we should definitely fix that. But, frankly, everybody wants to see this question of how we uh, manage uh, the asylum system fixed. There's a lot of different steps to make that happen, but one of them has got to be ending this flow of millions of pounds every day in terms of hotel accommodation. That means probably more than one asylum management centre like this Somewhere like a former RAF base, of which there an army base, of which there are a lot around the country, is a seems to me to be a natural and pretty sensible, probably quite cost-effective way to do it. Where there are concerns, take some of that five million pounds a day and spend it on. You know, if there's consultation with the local community, talk to the council about extra police officers, talk about proper extra capacity. There's lots of parts of this country where there are for example, high-security prisons or various different institutions where when they are set up, people are unhappy about them, but the country requires them for matters of fundamental security. Um, and often after they've been set up, actually the creation of jobs ends up being that they're institutions people want to see continue. So I think you know, if, if, you, if you go around the country and say, actually, we need to have everyone locally has to agree before we can open a single place, then people are going to stay in hotels forever and we can't have that. Kevin? Well, I, I need to lie down because I'm, I'm strongly in agreement with a, a, a Brexit voting Conservative there. I think what Mark's just said is really good sense 
Um, of course, planning laws are supposed to be about the built environment, but they have in the past been used as instruments of social policy. And councils in the past have blocked government plans, in one case, to um, uh, allow a change of use to allow a hotel to, to house asylum seekers. I mean, the problem is, even if you consult in good time, I don't think a community in, in an area like that, not to do with people being racist, because you know, that's a, a totally wrong assumption for anybody to make. I agree with you. But people will probably, it's very unlikely that if they'd say, OK, let's do it. And I think um, the lack of consultation is a real issue. But in that hall, with lots of retired people tonight, you know, th- this, this is going to have real trouble sticking because you're going to have a lot of very motivated people. There's going to be legal challenges. The MP and council leaders' jobs and re-election will depend on, on speaking up for local people. And I think, I feel, I feel sorry for the government because this show and other times we've said we've got to save money. The hotel yeah. bill's outrageous. But... This is a, a right pickle for them. It is. Uh, just so you know, by the way, this is all going to be debated in Parliament on Tuesday. There's a debate focusing on this between 7 and 7.30pm. Um, you know, we kind of go around in circles sometimes on these topics, don't we? I truly do not believe that the government is doing enough to stop this situation. I don't get, Mark. We just had the Queen's speech, didn't we? We had all of these reactions to different things that are happening at the moment. So P&O, some responses, uh, things that could help against those kind of situations in the Queen's speech. You know, these, these stupid climate uh, protesting methods that was responded to in the Queen's speech. So for the life of me, uh, I'm perplexed as to why... This, what I would class now as an emergency situation, hundreds of people almost every day just rocking up halfway along the channel and then off you go and collect them and stick them into hotels. That to me is an emergency situation and I am astonished that it wasn't uh, singled out in the Queen's speech. Well, indeed, and as a lot of Conservative MPs will tell you, for that matter, actually a lot of Conservative councillors, in some cases ex-councillors after the recent local elections will tell you, this is a, this is a growing issue. It's, anno- it, it, it's annoying and concerning a growing number of people one thing you see with this story, of course, is that the longer the issue continues unmanaged, the longer the challenge, the undermining of the, the border across the channel uh, is allowed to continue, the more across the the further across the country, the practical actual impact of this issue will start to take effect. You know, at the moment, for most people, it's about headlines. People read about it in the newspapers. They're naturally annoyed and concerned about the implications of it. For communities like this, obviously, you're now, you're now starting to see... You know, the need to create more infrastructure. Well, James, on the email, I think it is, uh, he's raised what you, um, what I would call a very good point, James. You've said, Michelle, why is it that they can give ex-RAF accommodation in Yorkshire to migrants, yet for years we've had ex-servicemen sleeping on our streets? Why couldn't they accommodate them in ex-service accommodation? That's a very good question, James, and I would love uh, to know someone in the government's answer to that. Uh, Bernard says, whoever's made that decision to house them in a village with less residents than in the camp should be made to live in the village then for as long as the migrants are there. Carl says, my ward is very similar. We're getting lots of asylum seekers put into it. But uh, basically, my local councillor lives in a different ward and therefore, he says, isn't affected by it. So what I think Carl's point is there is it's the people in the areas that are not happy about this. But I suspect, I might be wrong, but I suspect an awful lot of people would not be happy with this on the doorstep. So if you're not happy with this on anyone's doorstep, what do you do? Because you're just going to have ongoing multi-million pound per day um, hotel bills, which, of course, is ridiculous. Anyway, we're going to take a, a quick break in a second. I have to say lots and lots and lots of you are still writing in about that first topic, um, about the kind of the books and the children's 
sexualizations. Me, myself, I've only, I'm only just about getting over having to read all of that out on national television. Um, we'll have that anyway. We'll have some more responses to that coming up after the break. And I also want to talk to you about these employers that are still insisting that their employees have to be vaccinated against COVID. Why? We'll have that and more in a couple of minutes. Hello there. Welcome back to Jubes and Co. with me, Michelle Jubery. Lots of people uh, in contact about those last two topics. Um, someone here is saying that you're in Skegness and that uh, your hotel, one of your hotels on the seafront, is uh, full of, of people in this situation. It, I mean, this is happening. And I do worry sometimes about, to me, we've just had this conversation, hasn't we? The, um, the, the migrants, refugees, whatever, people are disputing what the correct label is. But they are just placed in hotels with very little consultation, if any, uh, with the local council, so it seems. It's all a mess, isn't it? Uh, And something that really does need stopping and clamping down on. But keeping me company until seven o'clock tonight, Mark Wallace, the chief exec of Conservative Home, filmmaker Kerry Dingle and the chief executive of PLMR, Kevin Craig. Now, we we used to speak about this topic a lot, the COVID vaccination and whether or not it was essential and all of these kind of mandates and employers trying to dictate to employees that they had to have their jabs in order to stay employed. You'll remember, actually, I felt so passionate about it that I did outdate the mandate campaign when the NHS were trying to force their staff to be vaccinated. Well, I have to say, I thought it had all gone away now. I thought we'd moved on with life, but no. A new study says that one in five employers will insist on a jab to get a job, which kind of makes me a little bit happy because that means that four in five will not. But I cannot help but wonder what on earth are these collection of employers still thinking, insisting on people being fully vaccinated against COVID in order to have a job? Kevin? Well, I don't understand, Michelle, uh, what your problem is with employers who have a duty to uh, protect and maximise the health and safety of their staff, especially earlier on in the the pandemic, insisting that people who were objecting to the the COVID-19 vaccine on ideological reasons or thinking there was a conspiracy or silly stuff like that, if they wanted to be like that, then they could get a job elsewhere. I mean, employees have got... But in the here and now, let's make it about the here and now. Uh In the here and now, why on earth would any employer be justified in saying that you can only work here if you're fully vaccinated or vaccinated, whatever their terminology is, against mm-hmm. COVID. Why? Well, uh, employee... Do you do this? Because you've got 100 staff. Well, people. we are reviewing this constantly and um, we are shortly, we'll go up to 100 staff. And, and we, I try to listen to colleagues and the policy during the pandemic was listening to people and people felt unsafe working with anybody who deliberately, without medical exemptions, which you've campaigned on and I agree with, people felt unsafe working with somebody who just decided, I don't want the vaccine, it's an infringement on my freedoms, blah, blah, blah. But now I'm not, you know, I'll, I'll talk to colleagues. I think, I think we're at a different phase of this disease, aren't we? I mean, but have you still got a policy for your 100 pretty much staff that you have to be vaccinated to work at your company? Uh, we haven't formalised it, but I don't, I don't condemn employers who do insist on it. I don't see what's the downside. Who well, loses? Well, I think, well, I'll tell you what, I think it's utterly ridiculous because actually, according to ONS infection data, so coming straight from the validated source, if you've had a vaccine over 90 days ago, you are just as likely to test positive as someone who is unvaccinated. 
So it doesn't matter if you've had one, two, three or whatever vaccines. If you've had that vaccine, and my source for this, by the way, is the ONS, I'll get the correct title, the ONS Infection Survey, says that if you've been vaccinated more than 90 days ago, you're just as likely to test positive for COVID as someone who is entirely unvaccinated. So the, the whole policy makes no sense to me on that basis. Are you saying then that COVID vaccines are a waste of time now then? What I'm saying is that the COVID vaccines were originally established for the original strains of COVID, which was Alpha and Delta and all the rest of it. We're in a situation now where 99% of the population have antibodies. Most people have had uh, COVID or they've had multiple vaccines. The age of people dying from COVID, unfortunately, it does seem to disproportionately affect the older uh, people. And I just think that on the basis of the things that I've just described to you, it is nonsensical and disproportionate for any employer to insist now on this policy. And by the way, before I move on, because I'm, I'm aware that there's another two people waiting to get in, you kind of mock people that say, oh, you know, it's rocket, it's my human rights. And I think it's absolutely fundamental that bodily autonomy is maintained and is never diminished. We won't, we won't agree on this. I, I need to shut up, Michelle. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how anyone can disagree with the statement that bodily autonomy is essential Nobody will ever okay. tell me to do anything with my Agreed. body that I don't want to do. Agreed. But in that case, during the pandemic, if it wasn't for medical reasons, and that was your view in principle at our company at the time, well, thank you very much. Respect that. Go and work elsewhere, because the rest of us are trying to protect the, re the rest of the people and their elderly relatives. Well, it's a good job I didn't work for you, because if I was somewhere where people were trying to tell me to have repeated vaccines over and over and over, I'd be gone. I'd be gone like the wind. Anyway, I've got two people sat next to me patiently <laughs> listening to me and Kevin rant away. Where do you two sit on it, Kerry? Um, well, I think this is entirely performative. The idea that any employers are now talking about compulsory vaccines or, you know, uh, jabs for jobs, I, I just think it's ridiculous virtue signalling, complete contempt for the workforce who they evidently distrust in terms of looking after what's best for their own individual health and for those around them. And I think that's always been the case with making things mandatory. Basically, you think your employees are untrustworthy scum who are likely to be spreaders, which is ridiculous because they are people who all have families and concerns and will do what's best for them. And why an employer should know better... God knows, uh, and it's certainly not the case. So I think this is outrageous, discriminatory, and should be challenged. Mm, Mark? So the um, first thing to say is I don't really believe at this stage in the pandemic or in this economy, frankly, where uh, we saw the other day that there are now more job vacancies than there mm. are people uh, in, in search yep. of work. I don't really believe that very many, if any, employers are actually going to do this. Well, according um, to the survey, <clears throat> according to the one survey, five of them are. Yeah, it, that depends when the survey took place, depends how they phrased the question. It's, it should be said the survey is from ACAS, who are the dispute resolution mm. uh, uh, body. So they, they, they want to talk about what, what it's like to have disputes in the workplace. I get that. It's good PR. I'm very dubious that you know, in our company it's not something that we've asked of people and um, not something that we're going to ask of people. I do, however, think that... It's something that employers should be allowed to ask of people. I think if they did in this circumstance, you'd lose staff, frankly. On in, what in, in, in most... would they Well, be... as, you, as you said, um, bodily autonomy is really important and people should always have that right to choose not to take a vaccine if they so wish. But so are other forms of autonomy as well. You have autonomy as an employer in terms of how you spend your company's money, for example. And so if you're saying to someone, well, to take this job, 
we, you, we require you to wear the uniform at work. We require you to, do, to, to behave in a particular way or, if in extremists, to get vaccinated. As long as that person also has the free choice to say, well, I'll choose not to take the job then, that is also a form of autonomy. I would personally extend that to other things. For example, uh, somebody should have the right to withdraw their labour to go on strike. From my point of view, if they do so, the employer should have the right to withdraw employment. You know, I think there, this is a, you know, freedom also comes, uh, the way rights work is they interact. Everybody has rights, they interact. You know, my right to swing my arms around stops just short of your nose uh, and, and, and so on. Um, you know, your right not to get punched on the nose. It, it might infringe on my right to wave my arms around. So medical to... privacy is not an issue? It's not about privacy. Well, it is, it, because, you know, you wouldn't ask... It's like going to a club. We had this during the pandemic. You couldn't get into a club without a, a passport. And then what next? Somebody going to ask you about your STDs if we're talking or your about, history? But if we're talking... Well, there are, there are jobs in which, of course, for, for example, people's uh, status with certain other diseases, particularly in medical jobs, uh, it, it is monitored. When we're talking about people's rights, if you have somebody who has a... You know, somebody has a right to choose not to get the COVID vaccine... I also happen to think that somebody who is a in a vulnerable category in their 90s in a nursing home has a right to have confidence that the person they're paying to care for them is not going to cough a plague in their but face. But people did this have is the how... vaccine. That's the point. This is the other side of but this. But we're talking this about is, people who This is a kind of post-COVID hysteria. You know, most people working in care homes did get jabbed. Right. Most people working in the health service did get jabbed without this right. mandatory hysteria which says you're all ir irresponsible killing the elderly. The real numbers that have got killed are not from people not having jabs and spreading it, but from really appalling loss of health care due to lockdowns and obsessions with these kind of things, or moving the elderly into care homes, which, 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 which they did early killed, on. Killed and that, yes, exactly. And now we've got millions who will die and have died precisely because they aren't getting the cancer treatments and everything else that was put to one side because of this kind of panic. None of which is neither or to this I'm, particular yeah, I'm sorry question. To Are you saying, Kerry, that you think then that the, 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 the lockdowns and the vaccination uh, rollout was all a waste of time and shouldn't have happened? I'm, lockdown certainly shouldn't have happened. That's killed people. I think lockdown is really bad for your health because it's based on a distrust of the public's and their ability to know what's best for their friends, family, community and workplace. And if that had been allowed, I think we'd been in a much healthier situation now. I'm absolutely for the vaccine. I think the vaccine's a very good thing, but not as a mandatory enforced um, uh, uh, medical process. Which, which nobody in this discussion said. Nobody well, said it if, if you're an employer and you're denying people a job, particularly now... When you're allowed a job you, you, on a policy. If you choose not to fulfil a policy for the job, you're welcome to go and choose to go and search for another job, if you so, so wish. Nobody has an obligation to have to employ somebody. But if you're employed and then your employer comes along and says, right, to maintain your uh, employment, this is now what you've got to do, then do you think that's all right? I think it should, be within, it should be within their rights. It should be within your rights to say yes or no. As I said before, I don't actually think that any, at this point in the pandemic or in this economy, any employer is really going to do this. In well, the same way, to give, you, to give you another example, for example, I oppose the ban on smoking in public places, but I totally support the right of a pub. If it wanted to advertise itself to staff or to customers as a smoke-free pub, 
you could choose to ban smoking in your own pub. You could ban your staff or customers from smoking in that space. And they could choose to go somewhere else. It's a difference between mandatory and voluntary. This but is how voluntary things work. a job. But banning smoking was a gr- in pubs was a great thing for our country to do. It saved so many lives. Everybody stinks less. It's yeah. healthier for staff. You know, nights out are better. You know, if you reinvented cigarettes, you know, no-one would allow them. If you reinvented cars, nobody would allow them. I mean, unfortunately, we live in a nannying age, but that, we've got into a wide... Yeah, cars do something, cars do something really useful. They take us from A to B. They have a server function, you know. I mean, so some bands So all good. pleasurable activities that might impinge on your sensibilities should be regulated by the state or a third party. I, I think was... that's appalling. It, you know, not smoking is a really good idea. Your contempt for people and need to always have a legal enforcement, I think is pitiful and actually breeds even greater distrust, which is well, very sad. I, th- I think, hang on a second, uh, you, nobody's got contempt for people here. That's a bit strong, if you don't mind me responding. Well, you just said they were smelly if, if they'd smoked, more or less. People, people, when you came out of a pub in the old days, everyone stank of fags, yes or no? Not only when you came out of a club, by the way, the next morning when you right. put your clothes up off the floor, uh, if you're as untidy as I was anyway, then there's that's some all, men as well. That's anyway. what I'm saying, Kerry. These people stank up, you know, the, the, the night... The, Kerry, the band. I was very good, at, very good at being smelly then for 40, 50 years. Yeah, you used to smell really enjoyed, Absolutely. How many a day? 50. You've given up. You've given up. Yeah, I haven't smoked for a couple of years. I couldn't afford it anymore. But um, and and it's a good thing to stop smoking. But that doesn't mean I think people should be forced to do anything. And whether it's cigarette bans or mandatory vaccination, I think that's very sad and actually deleterious because it means responsibility is taken away from us and our decision making. should, Should an employer have been allowed pre smoking ban days? To say, actually, you know what, we, we run a clothes shop, you're not allowed to, you're as a shop assistant, you're not allowed to smoke while you're in the shop. Well, you lot can all ponder that in the break. You can yes. also, I know that people will be sitting there going, hang on a second, uh, how come smokers get so many breaks? By the way, if you're a non smoker, you don't get as many breaks. I can just imagine that is what's going to come through on the email. Lots of contacts uh, on that last discussion. A very divided response. I'll be reading some out after the break. Uh, I'll see you in a couple of minutes. Coming up on Dan Watson tonight, are women's rights advocates standing up to extreme trans ideology? Our new modern heroes, Sharon Davies, who suffered death threats over her efforts to protect women's sports, gives her verdict on the escalating hostility shown towards campaigners. Plus, I'll quiz the chase star, Mark Labette, aka The Beast, following the revelation he's been forced to hire a bodyguard to protect him from fans. And get ready for more unfiltered opinion from political firebrand Anne Whittacombe, social media sensation Zuby, and my superstar panel, the conservative commentator Dominique Samuels, former Tory London mayoral candidate Sean Bailey, and author and journalist Amy Nicole. That's Dan Wotton tonight, Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes and Co. with me, Michelle Jubry. Keeping me company uh, tonight till seven, Mark Wallace, the chief executive of Conservative Home, filmmaker Kerry Dingle, and the chief exec of PLMR, Kevin Craig. Woohoo, you guys are getting in touch in your droves tonight. Uh, you are certainly uh, engaged with some of the things that we're talking about. Ash, 
says, Michelle, if employers want to insist on medical interventions for employees just so they can keep their jobs, well, then they should be paying compensation if, in the uh, event, anything was to go wrong. Brett says, Michelle, it's about time for people to simply drop this COVID fear. Um, What else? Bernard says, you know, if I was an employee of anyone that would demand this, I would resign and move on. Gordon says, I worked for an airline for 30 years and vaccines for a number of illnesses were compulsory. Michelle uh, says, I am furious that Michelle and the other lady, she means you, Kerry, (laughs) think that when working with older people, we should not maintain a safe environment for those living in a care home. Michelle, I would desperately like everyone to be safe. What I'm saying here is... Uh, given that you're just as likely to test positive if you've had your vaccine more than 90 days ago, someone that's unvaccinated, um, I just think that these kind of mandates are a little bit pointless, especially given that anyone that's kind of vulnerable in those homes will have had probably four jobs now, four jabs now, now, should I say. Anyway, keep your thoughts coming in. GBviews at gbnews.uk. Tweet me at Michelle Jubes. Now... Let me ask you this. Uh, We're always taught, aren't we, right from wrong, good and bad. We know it's kind of wrong to steal things. But if you're stealing to eat because you can't afford food, is that a crime? Top police officer Andy Cook says that officers should use their discretion when deciding whether to prosecute people who turn to crime because of the cost of living crisis. (sighs) I've got to say, who shall I start with on this? Kevin, I don't like the sound of this. Because um, I understand that times are very difficult uh, for a lot of people, and let's face it, are going to get a lot more difficult. But that doesn't, in my mind, allow people to just go out stealing and just kind of get a blind eye turned to that. I, I, I agree with you, Michelle, and I, I've got huge amounts of uh, personal empathy and sympathy for people on the breadline suffering from the cost of living who, who just cannot afford to eat, feed their families, feed themselves. But... I also believe that for for the one person who does resort to crime, there are countless others, working-class people, who don't resort to crime. I'm particularly motivated by those communities. And uh, I think that um, the the message the police officer uh, sends out risks um, uh, distorting, really, the the overall landscape. Because law and order starts with the small things, right? And the reality is, actually... Um, shoplifting goods less than 200 quid, the maximum sentence is six months. Very few people actually get that. It's already, there's a very, very small number of people actually who go to prison or who suffer sanctions. So I don't agree with what the police officer said. Kerry? Um, no, I don't agree with the police officer either. Uh, although, and I think it is tarring and a slur against working class communities, actually, because there is no equation between poverty and crime. And you can go to... And I've spent time in many of the poorest countries in the world that are some of the safest because there is no direct correlation. I think, actually, it's a really rude assumption. And we all know about upper-middle-class celebrity shoplifting and those kind of stories that have hit the news. Um, And there's not, in far as I know, some outbreak of people you know, rushing out with supermarket trolleys and fake receipts um, because of the the crisis. I don't think it's true at all. And I think the law should be blind in terms of these matters and not be fostering this kind of rubbish. And not only that, we have not got a famine in this country. People are not dying of starvation. 
And communities do band together to help each other out and help out people who are really on the breadline. We don't need more policing or hysteria uh, about going softly, softly about people nicking tins of beans. Yeah. It's rubbish. You tell them, Kerry. Mark? Exactly, as both my fa- uh, fellow panellists say, this is fundamentally insulting to say to somebody that because you are struggling or because you're going without, we, uh, the inspectors of police, effectively assume that you're more prone to just be a criminal by nature. Of course that's insulting to yeah. you know, people now, frankly, people throughout history who, who, who haven't had enough... Uh, I'm also... It's evidently damaging, this, to the rule of law. If you look at San Francisco, where you have um, uh, legal authorities who, for ideological reasons, have told police not to uh, arrest people for shoplifting, it's destroying businesses, it's wrecking lives, it's ruining the city, it's causing much more serious crime. And finally, the chief inspector of constabulary, we have a serious problem in this country, as we've seen with far too many stories recently, of issues within the police, of police officers failing to do their jobs properly committing horrendous crimes themselves. Mm. Could we have an inspector of constabulary yeah. that inspects the constabulary yeah. rather than tries to put people off punishing That's crime? It. And yeah, inside yeah. number 10 as well, all the law-breaking there, you know. Let's focus on that more, please. Mm. Well, Don't Bernard... Bore me. <laughs> Bernard says the law of the land is the law of the land, no matter your circumstances or who you are. I agree with you, Bernard. Uh, someone else says, uh, if I went to my local co-op, and took some Chablis because previously I could only afford Chardonnay, would I be all right? Uh, I don't think you would, actually. <laughs> Is that Jilly Golden? Yeah, I, I, I don't actually think you would. So I'd hate, to, I'd hate to condone that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, no, 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 no. I don't think that's how it works. Uh, still, many of you are getting in contact about that first topic that we covered. Um, that book, someone said uh, on the email here that if, you, if they collared an eight-year-old and started reading... Uh, passages like what I just read out, they'd probably be, uh, be done for some kind of uh, child sex abuse. I agree with you there. Um, someone else, Adam, says, it's disgusting uh, what you've just read out. I cannot believe that you read it out. I think it's crucial uh, to read it out so that actually we all know kind of what is going on. Um, I'm only just about recovering because it's quite embarrassing mm. to read those kind of things, isn't it? Uh, lots of people saying that this is all just a step too far. If you do agree with it, by the way, do get in touch as well, because I like to know the opposite side of this. If you're someone who heard that passage I read out at the start of the show and you're sitting there saying, what's the problem? As the author was saying, get in touch with me and let me know your thoughts as well. Right, that is all I've got time for. Thank you very much uh, to my panel tonight, Mark, Kerry, Kevin. Thank you. Uh, Linda says, by the way, this is all about being lenient on crime. It's all about the police getting out of doing any paperwork. There you go. Let me know your thoughts on that. (laughs) Right, guys, you have yourself a wonderful evening and I will see you tomorrow. Coming up next, we've got Nigel Farage. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.